Good to see you uh, all here as we're working our way through the wonderful book of Acts. We're in chapter 27 here this morning. Hopefully you've enjoyed this adventure like I have. We're hoping to be finished the week after Thanksgiving, so we're in striking business, all right? Usually you shouldn't get cheers for something finishing uh, when you're the preacher, but that's all right. We'll take it. So chapter 27, diving in, uh, kind of a big idea or theme, just talking a little bit this morning about uh, leadership. I'd say in a, we're in a culture that's pretty uh, committed to uh, uh, elevating leadership as a premium. Really, any field you think of, uh, whether it's the arena of government, business, sports, healthcare, entertainment, education, and of course, families, we put a high premium on leadership, the ability to effectively lead in those areas. In fact, our culture puts such a premium on there, they're willing to pay top dollar if you're good in the field in which you're placed. For instance, I was looking up some salaries this week that I thought were interesting. A neurosurgeon, the average salary in the United States is $665,000 if you're a neurosurgeon. And uh, to me, that's a no-brainer. But uh, in the sports, sorry, uh, sports arena, I thought it was interesting. Sports arena for coaching. We really elevate the value of coaching, the ability to coach. For I found this out that Doc Rivers, who coaches the Clippers, actually gets paid $9 million a year to lose. It's unbelievable uh, how, how, uh, how that works out. Other players such as LeBron James, anybody hear of LeBron James, this player in the NBA? I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, this last year came to LA for a whopping $35 million a year. And that's just his seller from the league. He makes an additional, I was reading, $50 million in promotion. So in one year, $85 million, not too shabby. I was looking in the entertainment arena, the director, Steven Spielberg, collectively in making films has made $4.45 billion leading because of his ability to effectively uh, make movies that we all like. Business arena, though, puts all the other arenas to shame. So anybody heard of this gentleman by the name of Jeff Bezos, uh, leader of Amazon? Uh, Anybody ever heard of Amazon? I'm pretty sure they're taking over the world. This gentleman, I was looking it up, and every nine seconds... He makes the amount of the average annual salary of an Amazon employee. So at Amazon, every nine seconds, which ends up translating to $260 million per day, per day. So he's adding $260 million to his $1.6 billion, or I'm sorry, $166 billion that he already has accumulated. So I, I heard he had a bad day in the market turned last a couple weeks ago. He lost $16 billion when he lost, when his stock went down. If you think you've got it bad when your 401k uh, makes a divot, but either way, This idea of elevating leadership is a huge one in our culture. We elevate it. We pay for it. We are committed to pursuing, figuring out how to become a better leader. Think about how many leadership books. Anybody in the last year read a leadership book? There's not a shortage of them out there. Thousands of leadership books, seminars, workshops. I have this theory. I have this theory, and that's where I'm getting somewhere with this. I have this theory that the answer to how to become a better leader is right in front of our eyes. I propose that following Jesus Christ equips us to effectively lead in any arena 
that you find yourself, whatever arena you're in, the more you, the better you do at following Jesus Christ with his Holy Spirit guiding and directing you in your life, the better you do at leading in whatever arena you're at. We're about to see that in our text this morning, and we'll explain what I mean by that further, by the story of the Apostle Paul. One little testimony in this story, he's about to get onto a boat with 270 people as a prisoner, headed to literally determine if he's going to live or die, and he goes from being a servant to somehow on the end of this trip, the leader calling the shots for everything. You'll see it as we explore this text. Let me pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through your word this morning. We ask that your spirit, even as we're talking, would invade this room, just meeting people exactly where they're at, that you'd make this message relevant for us this morning as we've all been entrusted to some degree with different arenas of leadership. We need you for all of those different areas, and we're going to see that directly here from your word, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 27, uh, if you wouldn't mind looking at that with me, that would be fantastic. Uh, Verse 1, we'll start with this first section on this journey where he's finally headed to Rome. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Embarking in a ship of Adramedium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Lots of good words here. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmon, Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Whew, got all that? So basically, here's what's happening. This is a very thorough, as you see from the text, overview of his adventures finally heading to Rome. If you remember, in the court process, Paul was not feeling like he was getting a fair shake, if you will, in the court system, so he made the plea to head to stand before who? Caesar, all right? If you want to go to Caesar, that's where you're going to go. So he's starting the journey on his way to visit Caesar, and it's giving an overview of lots of details, and you might be saying, why in the world is, are these things important? Here's the thing that's interesting as I was reading a commentator. It says the marine experts recognize this overview as the best description available of ancient navigation by sea. If you think about that, if you're making up some kind of a fiction book, would you include those details? Or is it possible that this is actually an account of what happened to the Apostle Paul? I would propose it's that. And here's a a picture of a map, and anybody that's a map person, this is a little overview of his trip, and really he's starting in the bottom corner there, he's going up around Cyprus, uh, or first to Sidon, up around Cyprus, and we're going to talk about this little adventure that he goes on from city to city. Uh, Basically, this section ends with him at Fair Havens, you see kind of right in the center of the map. 
but I don't want to spend a, a ton of time talking about every single one of those towns because that's really boring and I'll lose you. Uh, but I do want to point out the one thing from the sailing aspect is that things went much slower than expected. Much, much like any of your traveling that you've done recently, that's often the case, much slower than you had hoped. In this, though, I'd rather point our attention to some of the relational things that are happening in that short little section that I already read. The first thing that you'll notice, and this is about the reason why I've titled this Jesus Followers Connect with People, is that in this, you're getting little glimpses into Paul's relational circles. First off, you see that he has two close friends that are coming on this journey with you, with him. Basically, a friend that's going on this journey would have to be willing to what? Die with you. Because this, this could go lots of bad directions when you're heading to stand before Caesar with your life on the line. So seeing that there's, he has at least two close friends, I would suggest the first one is pretty easy to identify there. His name is Aristarchus. You can see it says specifically that, accompanied by Aristarchus. He's talked about in Acts 19, we discussed him when he was angry, when there was an angry mob in Ephesus that was trying to take out Paul. He's mentioned as one of the per people that they grabbed. He's also mentioned in chapter 20 as somebody that came with Paul to Jerusalem when he's coming to deliver the offering to the Gentiles. So basically, he's part of Paul's past, showing that he's got some significant depth of relationship because he's willing to come on this trip. Second person, less clearly seen in the text, is seen by the word we that's used. Who's writing this account? We are going, there you go, Paul's, Paul's not writing this, but Luke is. Luke is writing this account, so Luke is giving an account of saying, we did this. So Luke is also on this journey. So he's got two close friends, uh, companions. So showing a little bit something about us as leaders our ability to connect with people says something if you have two people that are willing to literally potentially die with you. So close friends also see something interesting. Do you guys catch the name of the centurion there in the text? What's his name? You see it there? Julius. That's a, that's a fun uh, name to say, Julius. So Julius is the guy that he's just meeting for the very first time. Now notice what Julius is willing to do after just knowing Paul for a couple of days. Julius is willing to leave Paul, his key prisoner, give him freedom to go visit some friends in Sidon. What in the world? That says something about Paul's ability to relationally connect with this guy, the fact that he's willing to risk his life. Because what happens if Paul flees? Man, that guy's dead meat. That's not going to go well for this centurion. So he's not just connecting with people in the past. He's engaging in the present with relational connections. It's one of the things we often talk about in this church. We often talk about, you know, when you're proclaiming the gospel, often it's going to be rejected and you're not going to be liked. But the other side of that coin is often when you're serving people and you're putting their needs above your own, when you're loving people like Christ loves the church, when you're, when you're engaging with people, people are drawn to that. Because more often, people are self-consumed with themselves and don't pay any interest in anyone other than themselves. And so Paul is setting a difference there and something about him that's drawing two close friends to come on this trip and also to bring this centurion in a short period of time to all of a sudden trust him. Third one, just briefly, just ending with this, also his ministry partnerships ran deep. He's showing up in this random city of Sidon, and he shows up, and what does it say? 
He's running to see some of the churches there, some of his relationships. Because what happens, the longer you're in ministry, you'll realize this, the more time that you spend investing in people, you'll find, oh, I can, I can hop on a plane, go here, and run into lots of people that I know and love. I can go here, run into people that I know and love. My wife and I were just a couple of weeks ago back in Chicago doing a, a wedding there where we administered for years and years. So neat, colliding with so many different people that you're like, oh man, so encouraging that people still love and care about you when you're walking with Christ, when he's guiding the ship. Basically pointing out this idea that one of the things that makes us effective leaders as Christ followers is our ability to connect with people. Paul obviously did a great job of that. Continuing in verse 9, he's also able to assess risk wisely. Since much time had passed, that's what I said was happening, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Explain a little bit of what's happening. You're like, what's the point of that little section? The first thing in verse 9, it says that it says that, that so much time had passed. The reason this was a big deal, sailing on the Mediterranean kind of has a window of when it's actually safe and when it's not. When we go out on boats, they have motors. It's no big deal. A sailboat, you end up going where? wherever the wind goes, right? So basically, they have this kind of window, and between September 14th and November 11th is considered kind of the red zone of sailing. In other words, you don't really want to go out to sea. Right now, it says that they're past the fast, which happens on October 10th. So they're really right in the heart of that season where it's like, uh, you don't really want to go on the water. After November the 11th, all the way till March the 5th, follow that on the calendar, November 11th, March the 5th, they don't allow any sailing on the Mediterranean. That's how intense it gets. So they're kind of pushing it already by sailing in this red zone. And so when they're coming to this question mark, should we press on, Paul finally speaks up. Paul already had been shipwrecked three times in his life. So when he's speaking, he's speaking from experience. He's like, listen, guys, this is not worth the risk. What was happening, it was a decision based on comfort. We see in that that map, we'll put it up there again. He's in in this this picture. He was in a city called New Haven. You see it right there on the bottom of that uh, island of Crete. New Haven, because of the direction it was facing, took the brunt of all of the wind. So basically they're saying, in that case, they're saying, if we stay here, it's going to be really cold and really miserable. If we just go 30 miles up, do you see the city of Phoenix just a little bit further up there? If we just go a little bit further, it's going to be a lot more comfortable for the winter. It was a decision based on comfort. Basically, Paul was able to do a couple things effectively. And you're like, how, how is he able to give wisdom in this situation? How does that even relate to him being a Christ follower? First off, one of the reasons we make great leaders, if you're following the Lord, is you have a direct line of communication with Almighty God. 
Did you know that as a Christ follower? You have a line of communication, a line of connection with the source of all wisdom. I would say that even if we just left today, like that's enough reason why we can effectively lead in different arenas in your life. Our God wants to bestow wisdom on anyone who asks. We're told if you're lacking wisdom, ask for it. He wants to pour it out on us. Many of us have seen that even in the little instances where God's given these nudges through the Spirit. Have you ever had this where the Spirit says, uh, you shouldn't do that. Everybody else is doing it. And you're like, yeah, but I just have this sense that that's not going to go well. We were talking about that in the church office this week and sharing stories and testimonies of that. And Larissa, who helps out administratively, she's like, yeah, I, I had that. I was driving recently. I were driving in the rain and I just had this sense, I get, kept having the Spirit was just telling me, you know what, Larissa, you got to slow down, you got to slow down. She's like, man, I kept ignoring it. And she said, even in the pro- thought process, it came to mind a, a, a picture of a scene from a movie where a car is going into a, a full spin. And, and, and she's like, yeah, but I kept on ignoring it. And guess what happened? She hydroplane. It went into a full spin and ended up into the side of a rail. And basically, as she looked back, thankfully, God protected her from getting hurt. But she's like, oh. Why didn't I listen to that? What's one of the resources as a Christ follower we have is we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, directing us and nudging us accordingly, which makes us amazing leaders if we utilize that. The other thing I think is less obvious here. I want to point to this. The other thing that I think allowed Paul to wisely discern the risk here was that Paul had effectively put to death his inner princess. Write that down in your, your notes. Inner princess. Uh, I'll explain what I mean. It's a, a term my friend Matt came up with. His inner princess. The inner princess is what makes us or keeps many of us from camping and staying in hotels. And many of us admit to that. Many of us, inner princess keeps us from McDonald's and okay with Panera. You know, we have this inner princess that drives us to want to fight for our comforts. That's one of the things that God warns us about and talks about the idea of putting or carrying our cross daily, putting to death our inner princess. Why is that important? Let me explain why that's important. Because often our protection, or if not protection, our our ability to decide things is clouded or blurred by our wanting to protect our comforts. Are you tracking with me? Often our ability to make wise decisions are blurred because we're like, oh, that risks what? My comfort. In this case, that was what was at risk with these folks. They're like, oh, I don't know if I want to stay here. I'm going to do something illogical because I don't want to take a risk of becoming uncomfortable. For us as a Christ follower, that's one of the things that's important is that there's a gradual release of the clinging on to things that are sources of comfort because you're like, yeah, I'm not being held down by much. Well, Paul, if there's anybody that's kind of let go of comforts after a few years in prisons, uh, he's not really concerned about a chilly winter, right? He's saying, I don't want to die at sea. So he warns them. They ignore him and decide to keep on pressing. It was just a short trip, though. If you're thinking about this, it was only supposed to be about a three-hour tour, about a three-hour tour. But then the weather started getting rough. Take a look at verse 13. So now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempest, I can't say that word, uh, help me out here, T- 
thank you. Uh, wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run among aground on the Sardis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Ooh, pretty intense account here. Basically, it's uh, the condition seemed right, and so they decide, you know, it seems like there's a nice little breeze starting to come. Notice what it says. They says that they hugged along the shore to try to go, just make it those 30 miles to Phoenix. Then, all of a sudden, this huge storm, and what do they call the storm there in the text? A northeaster. Did you know that that's still the name that we give storms? A couple years ago, the east coast of the United States was hit with a violent storm. Guess what it was called? Guess where the wind was coming from? See, you guys are all sailors in the making. So coming from the northeast, this huge storm comes, and what do they decide to do? What do you see there in the text? Instead of trying to go against the wind, they're like, there's no option to that. All they could do is turn their sails and go along with the wind. And what happens there is then what, basically wherever the storm's going, that's where they're going to end up. It describes some of the things that they did to kind of out of, out of panic. It says that they described first pulling up their rescue boat. Then they tried to strengthen their leaking boat by tying ropes around it. If you think about that day and age, these were just wooden boats. So basically they wrapped the whole thing in rope trying to hold this thing together and then just hoped for the best. It says that it describes them as starting to throwing things over the overboard, first their, their cargo. And, and it says something interesting. It says that they lowered the gear. Basically lowered the gear, the nautical term there is the idea of putting the anchor down off the side so that it drug along the bottom, kind of like an e-brake, if you will. So they're going, talk about a, an intense storm. Here's a, a picture of what a storm looks like in the Mediterranean. That's an actual picture on the Mediterranean. And uh, there they're being drugged along and not just like a, a little storm. Bring back that map. I'm pushing you on the, the things there. Look at, the, look at where they went from. Basically, you see the uh, Fair Havens. Basically, where they land is in Malta on the far left over there, which is 600 miles away. So 600 miles being drugged on a boat that has an anchor all the way to the ground. So talk about a crazy storm. This was the, like the storm of all storms. Do you think they should have listened to Paul? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so here, they're being drugged here, lower the gear, and it describes kind of the, the process of over time. They just start losing hope. You're like, man, we've thrown away everything. We've tossed. Now it's basically at this point, we're just waiting to go into that frigid, cold water to drown. Can you imagine what a sinking feeling that is? Even any, anybody hate cold water? Like even just that thought of it. A, a, a number of years back, uh, uh, my, I was with a group of friends. This was in college. We were on a hike outside. And it was like October, November-ish. And we we're go going past this uh, ravine. And on the side, we were like, man, look how pretty that water is below. And one of us in the group had this dumb idea of jumping in the water. 
I'm not going to mention who it was in the group that suggested it. Uh, but uh, but uh, so anyway, we jumped in the water with our clothes on, and there's like six of us, and we decided we didn't really think through where you get out. So we get into the water. First off, the shock of that, have you ever been in like legit cold water? It's like takes your breath away kind of. You're like, this is not going to go well. Well, we're starting to swim, and we're like, well, all we can do is swim, guys. Just start going, start going. My friend Sean, who is with us, in the, we're, we're probably three minutes in. He's like, guys, just go on without me. Just go on. I was like, it only took Sean three minutes to give up on life. Like, like what, in the, what in the world? I was like, I need to pick better friends. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, thankfully, because I'm telling this story uh, here now, uh, we actually uh, survived that. But you think about the, the panic that after days and days, and what does it say? It's in pitch black. So pitch black, you can't see the sun, you can't see the stars. What do you need those for? Navigation. So basically, they're just, man, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just wandering. And over time, what happens is all of a sudden, all hope is lost. See, that's the thing. And you're like, hey, Scott, where where do you see that a a Christ follower comes into a, a helpful leader in this scenario? Let me explain why a Christ follower, someone that's being driven by the Holy Spirit that has their hope in Jesus Christ, why they make a good leader in this scenario. The reason why is because we don't have much to lose. Even if we die, the last second, the very last time we take a cold breath in that cold water, guess where we're headed? We're immediately present with the Lord. So all of a sudden, that, that, that's why Paul was able to say uh, later on, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You have no hold on me. You have no handle. So all of a sudden, when a Christ follower is no longer afraid of death or no longer paralyzed by death, they can make a, have a, a rational decisions because they're like, eh, if something happens to me, no big deal. Here in this case, that's what set Paul apart. It's so funny how storms do that in our life. Storms have the ability to shape us, but they also do this. They also reveal who we are. They also reveal where we've placed our hope. When we're, when we're colliding in storms, all of a sudden you're like, Man, why am I so down? Why am I so miserable? You have to assess and ask some tough questions. What am I putting my hope in? What, what am I clinging to? What, what, what am I finding my value, my worth in? All of those things are questions that can have the potential to set us apart with our ability to make level-headed decisions if we're clinging to eternity with Christ. Verse 21, we're going to see actually Paul demonstrate this when he squeezed the right stuff comes out. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I love that. Yet, now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. (laughs) Kind of good news. For this very night there stood before me, I love this, me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. Stop there for the remainder of the the morning. We'll uh, continue in that story next week, but we'll think about that for a second. When everyone else had given up hope, what do we see Paul? Paul's like, man, I've still got hope. 
I'm still clinging to hope. And I, I love because he starts with a little bit of one of those, I told you so moments. Any parents ever have that with your children? All the time, right? That one of those, those moments where you're like, I just need to take a second to tell you, I told you not to do that. That, that wasn't going to go well. We had one of those, uh, those I told you so moments a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, Sienna. Uh, Sienna uh, somehow ended up pouring a nail polish remover onto an iPhone, my wife's iPhone, in fact, in case you're ever wondering how a, an iPhone holds up to nail polish remover, even though my wife put it in a bag of rice, <laughs> true story, uh, no, no way, it was, it was done, it was done. Now, a number of months prior, my other daughter, Alexa, had done a nail polish uh, remover stuff on our, on our kitchen table. And I found out that you had to re-sand the table and re-stain it because it's pretty uh, detrimental. So I thought in my lesson and my teaching there, I could effectively kind of lay out a principle that would be applied across all situations. But here in this case, we had one of those moments. But I realized as I looked at sweet little Sienna with her tear-filled eyes, I was like, I can't be mad at her. But it didn't change me from having I told you so moment because why? Why do you do that? It's not because you're necessarily mad. I don't think Paul in this point where they're all bleak and about to die, he's not like, I told you so, you dummies. Instead, what's he doing? He's saying, listen, I explained to you uh, this beforehand because why? I want you to listen to me this time. It's not to rub noses, isn't it? It's saying, I, I, I've done this before. We had this conversation. It would have been going a lot easier if you would have listened to me last time. So this time, my one hope is that you will actually listen to me. Here in this moment, Paul's saying, so trust what I have to say now. And what does he have to say now? What's the explanation? He said, an angel came and spoke to me just this very night and reminded me what I'd already been told two years ago, that I would stand before Caesar. This is going to happen. It's not a question. So often we think that circumstances are, are, are what that, that we're in. So often uh, we, we trust and we're like, oh, these circumstances outweigh God's promises. They're, they're greater than even he could solve. You see, Paul had such a track record of God's faithfulness in his life. He could have been going over Niagara Falls right now and would have been saying, I'm going to Rome. You know, like he, he knew Without a shadow of a doubt, that's where he is going. Because he knew he had been told he's standing before Caesar. So he was able, in this situation where everybody else had given up hope, he saw what? He saw the other side of the storm. He saw the other side of the storm. He said, man, it's going to be all right. Because basically, you guys get to freeload off of God's protection of me. It was the big idea. You, the rest of you are going to survive because God's protecting me for the witness I'm to give before Caesar. Pretty awesome picture there. But you think about what he said to him. Kind of probably received with mixed feelings. They said, okay, the good news is we're all going to live. That's good news. And everybody's like, yeah, we're all going to live. The bad news is the ship isn't going to make it, right? Can you, you're like, oh, you imagine the crowd kind of changing, right? But, but you think about that for a second. Isn't that the gospel message? Isn't that the gospel message? The good news is your soul's going to make it. 
The bad news is your boat's going to sink, right? Right? Isn't that the gospel message? This boat's going down. Some of you are just like, yeah, I noticed a new hole in, the, in, in my uh, ship here recently, and uh, my rudder's not working like it used to. And you're like, yeah, the, the, sing- yeah, the reason why is because the boat's going down, guys. I know that's bad news, but the hope of the gospel is this, that your soul will actually make it, and you'll blink in a moment. None of this, in this little ship ride we're on, is going to matter a bit. None of it other than the decision of where we placed our hope. Where did we place our hope? He's saying he's given these opportunities. Listen, guys, you can put your hope, this is what Paul's saying, you can put your hope in the same God that I worship, the same God that I serve. You can put your hope in him. It's an awesome invite to actually something beyond the storm for us as leaders. As we effectively lead, think about what an amazing resource that is that you're able to see past all of this where none of it's going to matter. A wonderful resource we can point people to is just the gospel in and of itself. So think about the different arenas that you've been entrusted to lead on, how many of those you would do so much better the better you follow the Spirit's leading. Think about it. The, 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 the better you follow his leading, you're going to connect with people way better. People are drawn to people that want to serve them and love them as, as Christ loved the church. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, that's what we're invited to. Man, you're going to connect with people. You're going to be able to make way better decisions because you have a direct line with Almighty God, the one that isn't bound by time or space, that sees the future. You're like, oh, man, I've got a pretty good resource there. Maybe I can effectively lead my family or in my business because of that. You don't get caught up when the storms come. You're unshakable because you realize, worst case scenario, I die and I'm present with the Lord. Not so bad. The last one that we saw here is that you can see past the storm, that none of this is going to matter. Our boat's going down, and the only thing that matters is where we've placed our hope. That's my premise this morning, that those who follow become much better leaders. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this text and this picture that we see of Paul living out leadership, where it starts with him just being a a prisoner on the way to court, ends up being the one calling the shots and providing hope for this group of men. God, I believe we can do that same thing in our different arenas of leadership. God, we have the hope that only you can offer, the hope that by being connected to you, is so amazing. I pray that we tap into that even in the week ahead, even in the days ahead, as we are entrusted with so many different areas that we lead, parenting, uh, work stuff, uh, what, whatever arena God's put us in. We just thank you so much for how practical your word is, and if we actually spend time to dissect it, there's a message for each one of us. We praise you for that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Just a couple things just before you're leaving today. One is we have a couple volunteers up front that would love to pray with you if there's any way we can be a support or come alongside you in any way. And I'd be thrilled if anyone wants to talk about uh, with me personally just about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ with your life. I'd be honored to get a chance to process through that with you. Otherwise, we pray you have a wonderful Sunday. Once a month, we have the opportunity to give towards a benevolent offering that helps people in our own community, our own church. And so if you're interested in that, It's one of the things we do as we're leaving here today. Otherwise, I pray you have a wonderful Sunday. God bless you.